the voices that we see on social media and increasingly cable TV and just media in general do not don't represent the views of the majority of Americans, but people think that they do because they are so dominant in what they read, what they hear, and what they see on social media. And so that's a you know it's a very con- con- concerning uh, dynamic, right? Because increasingly per- perception becomes reality. You know, you see the division, and it starts to make people feel more divided. When the truth is that most Americans aren't sharing political content, they're not animated by this sense of division and divisiveness. But but it's a dynamic that we have to wrestle with. Welcome to Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Mellick, and I'll be your host for the program tonight. According to a recent survey, 99% of progressive activists in America feel that immigration is good for America, while 98% of devoted conservatives think it's bad. 97% of the activists think the police treat African Americans more violently than others, while 93% of the conservatives think police are mostly fair to all races. And 99% of the activists disapprove of Donald Trump, while 98% of the conservatives approve of him. While these numbers reveal polarization in the extreme, there's good news. It turns out that these two groups don't represent the majority of Americans. A majority that is sick and tired of this divide and thinks we have more in common than not. Tonight, we're joined by Dan Vallone from More in Common, an organization that's been studying our growing political divide. Dan joins us to talk about the results of their 2018 polarization survey and the work they're doing to bridge the divide. He'll also fill us in on the results of a study they just released called Polarization and the Pandemic, How COVID-19 is Changing Us. Dan, welcome to Grace in 30. Hi, Ed. It's great to be here. I first heard about your Hidden Tribe survey from an author who's writing a book on conflict. And in our conversation on the phone recently, she used the term exhausted majority when describing how most Americans feel about the state of politics in our country. Tell us what that term means. It has both a literal meaning and then also we use it to describe 67% of the U.S. population. And so it's literal in that there is a real sense of exhaustion out among the American people. And it comes in many forms. It's exhaustion about the division that we see in our politics and the toxicity that we see in the rhetoric and the dialogue that our political actors are having. It's also a sense of exhaustion in a lot of other ways in that uh, the past several years have been very volatile, and that's even before COVID-19 and the pandemic hit. And so people are experiencing a real sense of fatigue across a number of fronts. And we use the term exhausted majority because, to your point in the lead-in here, we want to really delineate that there is this majority of Americans who, although they're demographically diverse, they vote Democrat and Republican, they're independent, what they share is that they are this sense of fatigue, they're fatigued by politics, they are looking for compromise and unity, and they believe that we can overcome our differences and work together. And so the more that we think of this exhausted majority as representing the majority of Americans, our hope is that lifts up people's uh, inclination to reach out to one another and recognize that the majority of Americans are not satisfied with politics as is, and they're looking for a better, more unifying way to engage one another. 
So in the survey that I read, you mentioned, or more in common mentions, knife edge elections and some of the polls, and they all seem to indicate a 50-50 split. But in your report, you, you note that there are seven groups or tribes of people defined by their core beliefs. Can you kind of fill us in on that? Sure. And so when you look at most polling, it breaks down perspective on the basis of partisan identity. And so, and most polls will show, if not 50-50, very close split between Democrats and Republicans with independents kind of splitting in, in either direction. But the truth is that most Americans, again, the majority of Americans, don't define themselves first and foremost by their political identity. You know, we all have multiple identities. We are from certain states. We are, you know, we have our gender, our race, we have our ethnicity, we have social identities. You know, there's sports teams that we're fans of, or we're, we're veterans, and all kinds of identities that we carry with us every day. And for most Americans, their political identity is not the most important one. And so when we did our polling and we produced these seven segments, we created each segment on the basis of how individuals responded to questions about their attitudes, their values and beliefs. And we got into a much deeper picture of who they are as a person. And then we use that to aggregate across the whole country assigning people to these seven segments on the basis of what we call their core beliefs. And when you do that, it turns out it provides a much more accurate and comprehensive picture of where the differences are in our country and where there's a lot more commonality than is commonly perceived. So when I read my intro, I picked conveniently for for the effect, the two extremes, the devoted conservatives, you call them on one end, which are 6% of the population, and then the progressive activists on the other end, which are 8%. But I think one of the good pieces of news is that you said it as a result of your studies, you found that four of these seven groups make up about 67% of everyone. And they're the ones that are, are the exhausted majority, the people that are sick and tired of things. And you also, in the study, it mentions that 77% of the people uh, that, that you surveyed basically said, hey, we've got more in common than we have different and you know they're they're I think they're hopeful. Am I am I stretching it if I say they're hopeful that we can we can overcome these differences and focus on what what we have more in common? So so they are hopeful. I will say it's 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 a hopefulness that also has some reservation because they do see the the reality of politics being very divisive, and so they they still have hope. They still have this deeply held belief that Americans share much more than we have, uh, which divides us. But again, like there, there's a lot of reasons that they, they're not out there shouting from the rooftop right now about how we're unified and how we're, we share so much in common. So a number of things were mentioned in the article as, as being contributing to this. And you mentioned tribal outrage, and it, it, that basically it works as a business model for social media, cable TV, talk radio, and that it's in a sense metastasizing. It's starting to reach out from those places to campuses, workplaces, and even the dinner table. Describe some of the, the findings in that area. Yes, no, and it's it's unfortunately true that it it is a business model and it's and it's a profitable business model. And to a certain degree, shocking content has always attracted attention to ver- to certain degrees, right? But now we see that as being the 
dominant business model for political actors, for media actors, and increasingly, as you said, it's, it's seeping into all of our aspects of, of life. And I'll just a couple of data points. So you mentioned that we have what we call the wing segments. So the progressive activists and then the traditional and devoted conservatives. If you were to look on Twitter, and so the New York Times used our data to come out with a report back in April of 2019. If you looked at Twitter, disproportionately political posts come from the political act, uh, the progressive activists. So again, progressive activists are only 8% of the population, but something like 50 or 60% of Twitter posts that involve politics come from members of that segment. And it's true for uh, the more conservative wing segments as well, but what it means is that the voices that we see on social media and increasingly cable TV and just media in general do not, don't represent the views of the majority of Americans, but people think that they do because they are so dominant in what they read, what they hear, and what they see on social media. And so that's a, you know, it's a very con- con- concerning uh, dynamic, right? Because increasingly per- perception becomes reality. You know, you see the division and it starts to make people feel more divided when the truth is that most Americans aren't sharing political content. They're not animated by the sense of division and divisiveness. But, but it's a dynamic that we have to wrestle with. So what is the most frightening or concerning thing that, that you pulled out of that survey? So it's actually so that we did a second survey in 2019 called Perception Gap, how false impressions are pulling Americans apart. And one of the most concerning findings we found there was that um, both Democrats and Republicans, so people who have a strong partisan identity, Nine out of 10, to some degree, felt that the other side was hateful, racist, and brainwashed. And they nine out of 10 felt their own side was honest, reasonable, and caring. And so that kind of deep, deep affective polarization, where it's not just that you disagree with someone, but actually you think they are an immoral person, that's very concerning because that's the kind of dynamic that fuels are the inability to make any progress on a legislative front. It fuels, honestly, civil violence because it makes people more inclined to act on this sense of, of hatred. And the truth is, it's just, again, that's not the reality for most Americans. And yet for some of the most politically active groups in our country right now, there is this real sense of the other side is not just wrong, they are repugnant. Yeah, Arthur Brooks mentions that in uh, his book, Love Your Enemies. Yes, he talks about yes. a number of studies and how how we view each other like that. What what do we do? You you guys have clearly done this data collection and processing, and you're reporting this, and people like the Times are using it. What about efforts to to change this? What do you do with that particular problem that you just mentioned? What groups are you working with? What sort of progress can you tell us about that gives us listeners a hope? Sure. No, and the good the good news is, and you know, we see this now with the coronavirus and the incredible efforts being done by so many local community groups, by uh, grocery store workers, nursing home workers, faith groups, business groups across the board coming together to try and tackle this common threat. But there are a few things that we recommend in that it starts at the individual level. And so all of us can be more uh, deliberate in the media we consume. If you typically look at liberal or conservative media or or even whatever your political orientation is, try and diversify what you consume. Try and look at media that has a 
perspective different from your own. The second thing is do the same thing with the actual people you talk to. So this is more difficult now that there's you know, less ability to engage people personally, but it's really important. An incredible finding that we also identified was that increasing, so there's, there's an, two dynamics at play. So when we analyzed media consumption ha- patterns, we found that individuals who were more strongly conservative uh, had a more narrow media consumption habit. And by that, I mean, they looked uh, pr- predominantly at a smaller number of news sites, such as Fox News, Drudge, and less of other sites, everything from CNN to NPR to PBS, etc. On the Democrat side, there was a fairly diverse media consumption pattern, but their social circles were very ideologically narrow. And so basically, with every incremental education level that we we tested on, so as you move from high school degree to some college to two years of college to four year, we found an 11% increase in the likelihood that the individual said, some or most of my friends have the same ideology as me. And so we are really narrowing the social circles to people who believe the same thing that we do, and it reinforces some of the worst biases we have about the other. So the more you can actually get to know people who have a different political perspective from you, the more you're going to be grounded in a real, realistic understanding of what the other side, to use that term, uh, believes. And then there's, so those are personal things. And I think it actually is really important that individuals take action here because that's where some of the most powerful change can happen. At another level, what we, and we work with a number of groups, is how can we introduce new kinds of media formats? So there's lots of great, I mean, you're, you're this, this show is a version of this or, an, or a, a kind of a, a demonstration of this, but there's a lot of really good media organizations coming to the fore now who have a different focus and who are trying to bring less partisan narratives to the front. And there's great groups like Solutions Journalism ne- uh, um, Network, which works with news outlets across the country to try and add complexity to how they describe events and avoid the narrow partisan lenses. So there's a lot of systemic change that needs to happen in our country, but it also starts with individuals changing our behaviors and our, and our, kind of our own activities. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because we've been doing this program for four years now. And we've had all sorts of people on and, and there, there are common threads that we're hearing from everyone. And you just said one of them that comes up over and over and over. I call these strands of grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the big thing we hear over and over is proximity. Yeah. Get close to someone you don't agree with, you, you know, who's different than you, who even you don't like. I mean, we talk about the scriptures, you know, we're commanded to love our enemies, do good to those who hate us, bless those who curse us, pray for those who hurt us. Jesus defined our neighbor who we're supposed to love as, as a despised Samaritan. So we just hear over and over the importance of proximity, listening, you know, radical, unexpected service for those sort of people. We had a Better Angels on a couple of months back, and he told a story about a former police commissioner in a small remote town and, and you know, hardcore Trumper. And they brought him together with a former Iranian immigrant, hardcore blue and they just got to know each other. The Muslim gentleman went to a church with the, the Christian and vice versa. And when the Christian went to his service, he just broke down and wept because he realized you know, these people are, are seeking God just like he is. They're trying to build better lives for themselves and their children, their families. And so it's nice to hear when you mention that. I do, you know, what was new that you mentioned, you know, only a couple of people have mentioned is to, to really 
try to monitor and, and expand your consumption into something that's different, not listen to the same old echo chamber stuff over and over. I just had one more note, and this is something that we as individuals can do, but it's also, as we think about, and you mentioned faith and faith-based groups are a big part of this. One of the reasons that politics has also become such a defining identity for so many people is that we we have seen you know the collapse of traditional social uh, social gatherings. Right, this is Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone describing how Americans are increasingly isolated from one another in a social sense. We don't have activities that bring us together. And I think that the corona, and this is maybe a good point to transition to, but the coronavirus is really driving home how so much rebuilding needs to be done at the local civic and social level. And they're going to take new forms, right? We can't just reinvent the social and civic institutions of the past, but make things that work for people today. But we absolutely need more gatherings, more organizations, more centers and community places where individuals of all kinds of diversity ideological, demographic, everything can converge and and share in something. It could be playing sports, it could be doing service, it could be faith, but we need those spaces and we need a lot more of them uh, to kind of get us back into a more stable place as a country. Let's talk about COVID-19. Um, tell us when you, because the report just came out about a week ago or so, or even, even sooner, when did you guys decide to undertake this effort what are some of the key findings? Because I, I glanced through it. Tell us about what you did. Sure. So, you know, we've been looking at the uh, coronavirus pandemic since it kind of hit more in common. We work with organizations. We have more in common teams in the UK, France, and Germany. So we collaborate across countries. And so really, when the virus hit Europe and Europe started to go on significant lockdowns, we started to reflect on how can we better understand what this is going to do to our sense of shared identity? What's it going to do to our social relationships? And so in the U.S., we decided that we, sh- we needed to field a poll because there were lots of polls. I mean, every day there's many polls being done on the virus, but none had looked at how is this affecting how we perceive our differences, how we perceive what brings us together, our sense of solidarity. And what are the, how are we thinking differently about community and gratitude? And so that's what we focused on in our poll. And I'll just, I'll highlight a few, few headlines. So the first, and this is going to be most familiar to everybody because it's what you see in the headlines, but people are genuinely concerned about the economic impact that is already here and is coming. So 70%, uh, 77% of Americans believe that an economic depression is more likely than not. At the same time, though, what we see is this incredible surge in a feeling in feelings of unity. And so we went part of our poll, we surveyed people that we had previously engaged in 2018 for our hidden tribe study so we could compare results. And today, 90% of Americans believe we are all in it together. And that number was just 63% in 2018. So that's almost a 50% increase due to this coming together to tackle the common threat of COVID-19. And at the same time, in 2018, 62% of Americans described the country as very divided. That number is down to 22% now. So there's really this very strong story of us as Americans coming together, feeling a sense of unity against a, a common threat. And the final point about that is there is this incredible uh, 
increase in the feelings of gratitude for a lot of frontline heroes. And so 84% of Americans believe that doctors, nurses, and hospital staff deserve to be considered heroes right now. And 76% of Americans say that they are more grateful for grocery store staff. And so we see this really strong recognition that we, you know, we have millions of Americans who are out there in hospitals, but also delivering groceries, making sure that assisted living and nursing home facilities are still functioning. And that gratitude cuts across ideology. And it reminds us that we are all in this together and that this, this virus affects all of us. And so there's not a, there's, you know, too often our political debate and kind of national conversation has always been about an other, whether it's Democrats mm-hmm. talking about Republicans, Republicans talking about Democrats or any number of others. This is a story of us. And there's not a them here. And that's a very powerful moment. And so we, we, we're going to continue to engage in this kind of work because we want to have our country come out of this virus stronger, more unified and positioned to kind of build on this solidarity and not revert to our fractured state. So tell me how you do that. I mean, you, you, you basically work with all sorts of organizations. You take the results of your studies. Tell us a success story or two where you've worked with someone you came together, you reviewed the data together, you, you developed a plan, and, and you saw noticeable change. Yeah, sure. So in the U.S., we had a, a large project with a series of partner organizations. So in 2018, 2019, we worked with a number of immigration organizations to convene 27 living room conversations across the country, bringing together people of all different perspectives on immigration. And the goal was to find common ground. It was to introduce people to people of other different backgrounds and to make the conversation less political, less partisan, less toxic, and more about here's what we share, here's what we have in common. And it wasn't it wasn't just about changing people to support a particular legislation. It was about increasing our shared recognition of humanity and as and shared uh, values and identities as Americans. And so that really had a noticeable effect on people. We held it across the country, you know, in mid-sized kind of cities and towns. And that was one effort that we had a lot of great partners working on from across the kind of ideological spectrum. But it underscored for us the importance of, of taking data to, in, to equip people to have these kinds of conversations. And so there is a lot of work that we can do to introduce ways of talking about issues that we feel so divided on in what in order to actually illuminate common ground so that's a lot of what more in common does is trying to think how do we reframe polarized conversations by introducing shared values shared orientations shared identities as the starting point and then we build from there how did you guys come about and who funds you i mean where does the funding come from you're certainly not a for-profit organization or, or are you no, so we are so we're five hundred one c three nonpartisan nonprofit in the U.S. and we are pretty much one hundred percent foundation funded, and those foundations have a significant degree of ideological diversity. And you know, we list we try and be very transparent. They're all listed out on our website. Um, we came to be out of a series of uh, fairly tragic events, actually. And so this, this the origin story for more in common is that there. 2015, 2016, 2017, across Europe and the U.S., politics just turned in a very ugly direction across the board. 
And so a group of kind of um, concerned citizens in those countries came together and talked, and they were all working on efforts to try and bridge differences and, and elevate common ground. And then, uh, unfortunately, there was a member of parliament in the UK who was uh, killed by one of her constituents because they disagreed with her views on immigration. And that member of parliament had given a very famous speech where she called on, in this, in this case, the UK, to, to, to elevate all that we have, all that we have more in common than that which divides us. And so that's kind of the mission for us, is that in, in a polarized society, we can too quickly uh, descend into violence and dehumanizing of each other, and that we actually really need to focus with a lot of intentionality on bringing people together to see each other for who they are, for the actual people who we are, and to see all the common values and beliefs that we share. So that was our, and that was, you know, we really launched in 2017. We launched in 2018 in the U.S., and we continue across all four countries that we work in to do these, this kind of these, this research and projects that bring people together and provide new ways of talking about contentious and divisive issues. Can you give us a challenge? Can you? What do you want ordinary people to do? What do you want listeners to do? Beyond the media consumption and your social circles. So one of the most divisive conversations in our country right now is, um, well, politics in general. But the challenge that I, I tell people is, one, I don't listen to social media. I think if, we, if there is one behavior change that could be very powerful, it is to change how we let social media define our experience of each other. And so the challenge is if you're going to be on social media, don't share political content, share unifying content. If you're going to listen to social media, consume a lot of different voices. And anyone who's sharing mostly political content, think about diversifying away from those kinds of messengers. But the more that we can move out of the social media space and into the interpersonal space, the more we're going to find that we actually have a lot in common and that we want to contribute to that shared community that we need to build together. And so how can people then, that's something a person can do themselves. How can they encourage other people to take some sort of action? So it's, uh, it's ironic, but I think using social media, let's make social media good. I think there, you know, uh, so I, let's see, I graduated from high school in 2003. When I was at West Point, Facebook first kind of emerged and there was this period of time when it was a very healthy place. It was bringing people together. It was sharing pictures of family and, and meaningful activities. Let's make digital spaces better by getting politics out of it and to making it about what we have in common, what we're happy to celebrate, and, and what we want to sacrifice and commiserate together when things are hard. But let's make social media a healthier space, and it will see that play out in our lived experience as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us if listeners want to find out more about More in Common, just go to moreincommon.com on the web. You can download their Hidden Tribes and COVID reports. They are free at the website. We continue to encourage listeners to contact us at Grayson30 on Twitter and at our website with stories about people serving each other and bridging the divides that separate us. As we always say, let's shine a light on how to behave and not how not to behave. A recording of this program can be found at thegrayson30.com and the WERA.FM websites, as well as on iTunes and Stitcher. This is Ed and Dan signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace.